Okay, here we go. You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. Well, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, around the country, around the world. You are listening to WCET.FM in Columbia, South Carolina, with the Supernatural Realm, live right here on Tuesday, 7 to 9, with your host, Tim Roxbury and Chip Breckenthal. Chippy! Yeah, Timmy. <laughs> and even better than that is our Thursday edition, as we are live Thursday, from 7 to 9. <laughs> You said Tuesday, and I did Tuesday. You know, it took me back to a past life from two days ago. You know, when we were actually live on Tuesday, and you know, we've been having a lot of fun uh, before coming on the air, as we always do. You know, helps it easier to have fun while we're on the air. Um, Awesome guest today, as always, and that is the magic of Tim Roxbury. You know, always finds them just the greatest guests today. And perfect for a Thursday, if you will, <laughs> the, uh, the first formal day of spring, I suppose. Uh, with us today is the phenomenal Mel Schwartz. Uh, he's got an LCSW, uh, that kind of short for lawyers can sue whomever, <laughs> and a master of philosophy. He's a psychotherapist, a marriage counselor, a TEDx speaker and Corporate Leadership and Communications Consultant. And he is the author of The Possibility Principle, How Quantum Physics Can Improve the Way You Think, Live, and Love. Really, really, some one of the first people to tie in quantum physics mm-hmm. and psychotherapy, which is phenomenal. And he's with us today. Mel earned his graduate degree from Columbia University, Mel's TEDx talk, Breaking Free from Anxiety, which I'm sure will resonate with uh, most, if not all, of our listeners, receives over 50,000 views per month. He's written over 100 articles read by more than 3 million people. One of the first practicing psychotherapists to integrate the principles of quantum physics into a transformative therapeutic approach. And Mel practices in beautiful Westport, Connecticut. and Manhattan, and globally uh, via FaceTime. I was telling Timmy, uh, Mel, before I brought you on that, you know, uh, I'm spooky at a distance, you know, (laughs) but because I'm so inactive, it has nothing to do with uh, quantum mechanics. But we certainly welcome the wonderful Mel Schwartz to the Supernatural Realm today, Timmy. And welcome to the show, Mel. Uh, as, as, As I'm sure you know, we we talk about quantum physics a lot uh, here here on the show from time to time, and uh, it's one of the major subjects that uh, this show is actually about, so welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be with both of you, Chip and Tim, and spooky action at a distance. Um, 
might be a good place to start, but we'll, <laughs> we, we, can, we can begin wherever you like, guys. Mm. Well, gee, I'm entangled in that idea myself there. <laughs> okay. So, so since we're entangled, um, should, should I assume that your listeners know what these terms mean? Mm, some yes. of them probably do, yes. Okay, so listeners out there, uh, I'm going to quantumly entangle with you. You needn't say a word to me. And I'm going, I, I, I'll give you some spooky action to the distance, which um, Carl Jung called synchronicity. Mm -hmm. okay, um, Jung, who developed the concept of synchronicity, actually did so working with a quantum physicist named Wolfgang Pauli. Oh. And he looked at the interface between our conscious mind and the physical world. So I've been playing with some brand new ideas and sharing them with one of my sons. And I told him about an interesting meeting I had the other day with a Harvard Medical School doctor who out of the blue said to me, did you ever trip? Hmm. And I said, yeah, back in the 20s. I said, why do you ask? He said, I don't know, something just made me think of it. And he was talking to me about guides who facilitate trips and the healing powers of uh, hallucinogens. And my son said, stop, Dad. I'm looking at the license plate of a car right now that says LSD. Mm. Now, wow. that was the first synchronicity. <laughs> Ten minutes later, I had just finished writing my first song. I've never written songs, but I've decided to write lyrics and around my work and set it to music. And I just finished writing a song, and the title of the song was Give Me Some Uncertainty. <laughs> and I turned around, and the license plate in front of me was Gimme. So the wow. universe and I were entangled. We were as one. And wow. it was just a great pat on the back of saying, keep going, Mel. You're heading in the right direction. Yeah, it sure seems like that, right? Yeah. yeah. See, I got to take up my, my, I got all my instruments, but I haven't set them up. You know, I got a couple of synthesizers and a guitar, some drum machines. In case you ever need help with that. You know? Well, mine's, my instruments are in my head. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's where I do my best playing. You know, once I actually physically get there, it sounds a lot worse. <laughs> but just thought I'd throw that in there. Absolutely goes. <laughs> sure is. Uh, Timmy. So, how how when did you first get into uh, quantum physics and, and you know acquiring those with your studies? Um, this I'm in my second career, my second life. Um, until I was approaching the age of 40, mm -hmm. I was a pretty ordinary guy. I was in business. Um, I designed and manufactured women's clothing. One day, I'm driving home from my office, which was in Manhattan, to my home. I was married at the time and had two little kids. And I had an epiphany. Mm -hmm. And it was, I can't do this anymore. Uh, my business was, for a young man, it was successful. I was doing well. I was living the life. And some reality broke through. And I thought, there's got to be more meaning and purpose in life than this. I went home. That evening, I shared with, with who became my former wife. But she was my <laughs> wife then. And I shared with her that, this realization that I'm going to close the business. Mm -hmm. I, need, I need to find a better calling. And she was worried, which I understood. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I went to sleep that night as excited as a kid the night before their birthday party. 
all full of possibility. And I, I was wondering, what will I do? And I remembered years before someone had said to me, Mel, what do you love to do? And I remembered my answer. I love to help people think differently, mm-hmm. I said. I love to help people have insights. So I thought, well, what could that look like? So by the morning I had it, I thought, I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to get the quickest degree I can. And I'm going to practice psychotherapy. And I'm going to open up to teaching and mentoring people and giving talks. But I'm going to do it my way. Because at around that time, I had purchased a book called The Turning Point by Fridjof Capra, a quantum physicist. So to answer your question, Timmy, let me tell you what happened. Okay. Shortly after my separation, um, my kids were with their mom on one particular weekend, which was an aberration. My children really lived with me. I raised them. But this weekend, they were with their mom. I went out for a bike ride, beautiful day, and I had an anxiety attack. First one I ever had. didn't know what was up. I turned the bike around. I drove home. Don't know what relief that would give me. Went into the house. I absentmindedly pulled a book off the shelf called The Turning Point by Capra. And I started to read about this shift in worldview that was coming at us fast. And that reality is not the way we were taught as kids. It was not a Newtonian reality of cause and effect and separation. And I noticed that within a few pages after reading about quantum theory, inseparability, entanglement, and uncertainty, my anxiety was gone. Wow. Not only was the anxiety gone, I was all full of curiosity and wonder. Well, that has never stopped. So over the years, as I started to read this, and by the way, for, for the listeners and for you guys, um, I was a C student at Best in Science. I'm not talking here about the math. I'm talking about the simple concepts. Right. So I, I read of these principles, which have been tested and proven true and true without fail. And that is that the universe, reality, is just like what the Eastern mystics tell us. It is one inseparable whole. Jung called it unus mundus, one world. I gave a talk years later called Beyond the Mind-Body Connection. And I said to everyone in the audience, there is no mind-body connection. They were, couldn't understand. I said, there's no connection because there's no separation. We're not thinking clearly to call it a connection. If it's one, there's no connection, there's no division. So I began to look at these principles and I began to realign my thinking and my beliefs in accordance. And over time, I started to practice my therapy in a way that was consistent, which is I don't analyze, I don't diagnose. You know, in therapy, they, t- they teach you to be careful of transference. Don't get too close. Right. You don't know when your stuff becomes their stuff. I said, nonsense. <laughs> There's no separation. So why, why should I try to be objective? So I immersed myself in the entanglement, thinking there's a deeper intuitive wisdom that can er- uh, emerge when we align with each other. So to answer your question, Tim, um, this began for me 25 to 28 years ago. Wow. Absolutely. And that, that, that's, that's what prompted my writing of my new book, The Possibility Principle. So in this book, I simply take these principles and I show the reader how our thinking, 
our relationships, our communication, our own pathway, open up without fear, how we can build resilience. And I also suggest that most of what ails us comes from living under the belief that we are the cogs in the machine of Newton's worldview. Mm-hmm. That worldview creates the epidemic of depression and anxiety that we live with. You know, my TEDx talk, uh, Breaking Free from Anxiety, um, my belief is one of the primary causes of anxiety is our need for certainty and predictability. We want to know the future, but you can't know it. Mm-hmm. But if you need to know the future, it creates anxiety. So people who are wed to certainty suffer from anxiety disorders. So what I introduce is the methodology to get your mind free from certainty. And paradoxically, what happens when we embrace uncertainty? We get in the flow of life. You know, Oscar Wilde said, uncertainty is the essence of romance. Well, ain't that true? <laughs> so what happens once we secure the romance? We start to default to certainty and predictability. And then we say, well, passion dies. Well, that's why. Because when it becomes predictable, well, that's the death knell of romance. So I teach in the book and in my work that when we embrace uncertainty, we get in the flow, we get creative, we live with much less fear. And so these principles are the guiding light of my life. Wow. That's interesting. That's great. That's beautiful. Yeah. I could also understand the epiphany that you had, you know, uh, back at the time that you did. Because I know as somebody who's been happily married now for 30 years, mm-hmm. that if I were designing women's clothing, that day would come where I would have to say, I'm sorry, honey, but you do look fat in that dress. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Now's the time to find a whole new career. Uh and you've certainly done it. I mean, the, the book is, uh, I mean, it's been described as a landmark. It's gotten remarkable buzz. And and you mentioned, uh, I, I read somewhere, you know, you have some articles or, or and you, I've seen it mentioned on, on psychologytoday.com, which is in itself a, a remarkable thing because they don't usually tend to be flattering about a lot of stuff. <laughs> just my personal well, well, you know, look, they, they are in institutional orthodox publication. So, you know, introducing a new way of thinking can be problematic for them. For, for example, um, I wrote an article which I, I, I think the article was, article was called a new diagnosis that the DSM, which is the manual of diagnoses, the, doc- had, yeah. that the DSM needs a new diagnosis and that's, they believe their own shit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now here's, here's what I mean. A diagnosis is something that a handful of psychiatrists sit around, they're talking, they're talking about, let's go back years ago before we had the diagnosis of ADHD. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're talking about, and they say, you know, there's a lot coming up about a lot of distractibility. Some people are very distractible. Other people are very hyperactive. This is coming up in the field. What should we call this? Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll call it attention deficit hyperactive, hyperactive disorder. That's a description. Right. And so as a description, I have no issue. We're describing what we think we see. Right. Okay. The problem is the way our minds operate, gentlemen and listeners, is that we our mind makes something up 
and then we forget we made it up and we turned it into a real thing. Mm -hmm. So from a description, we then say Jane has ADHD. And my point is, she can't have something that we made up. (laughs) (laughs) It's a description. Now, I don't mean to suggest that there aren't people who who don't suffer from attention deficit. But you don't have it. So our mind does this with everything. That's called reification. Reification. Or a great philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead called it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. (laughs) I love philosophy. Beautifully said. Mm -hmm. So we do all this time. That's how our language works. We talk about ego. Is ego a thing? It's a word describing a process that we think we see, which over time will change. So the problem in traditional psychology is the inclination to diagnose. If I walked into six different psychiatrists' office, mm-hmm. I'd get six, You'll get six different diagnoses. And I'd get diagnosed by all of them. Yeah. Now, as somebody who was a DS3, a DSM-3 guy back mm-hmm. in the day, right. um, here's my, my problem, and I wanted to uh, get your take on this. In fact, I would love to. Um, let's take uh, PTSD, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, because we used to call it shell shock back in the day, and at least it sounded like somebody who fought valiantly for our country and came back, you know, um, with nightmares or hearing loud noises and, and having palpable reactions. Um, it sounds like they earned it, you know, shell shock. But now they call it post-traumatic stress disorder, and like the attention deficit Disorder. They both end in that D word, which is disorder. I've got this thing about you who think that some something might be wrong with you, so you go to see one or six people smarter than you, and they'll say, okay, here's your label, and that label has the D word in it. So not only were you right that there's something wrong with you, it's a disorder, <laughs> And then they bring that home and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, well, I'm told I have this disorder. So now I'm going to accept any proof of that and uh, reject anything that goes against that. And then you become separated from the community because of that whole NIMBY factor. Not in my backyard. I don't want people with disorders in my neighborhood. <laughs> you know what I mean? And And so the label itself, which you've already said that, you stay away from, and thank you for that, is the thing that bothers me about, uh, I guess, our mental health profession in this uh, culture, civilization, day and age. Now, all true, but we can flip that and look at the other side. And I go into this in great length in my book, which is, in a way, we could look at our culture, our society, and the way we live as disordered. Yes. It is dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, just like, you know, when you're ill and you have a fever, the fever is just indicating there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And your body's and so, working at it. Yeah. So the other way I would look at this is, you know what? We actually do have an epidemic of anxiety, whether we diagnose it or not. We do have an epidemic of depression because, again, living under the rule book that follows Newton's worldview the culture is disordered, so our thinking and our way of living has become sick. Here's how I look at it. I look at words. Language is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I look at a word like awesome, which came very popular, I don't know, a decade or two ago. Mm -hmm. And I thought awesome. Well, originally awesome meant something full of awe, mm -hmm. right? right? So now a uh, fifth grader comes home and shows their parents an A on their report card and the parents says awesome. Are they saying that's full of awe or are they saying job well done? It's, <laughs> it's the stamp of productivity. So if we look at words, um, wonder and curiosity are not much valued any longer in the world we live in. Now, you show me someone who has wonder and curiosity, they are not going to be depressed. Mm -hmm. The absence of wonder and curiosity are a loss of attunement with nature and real things creates depression. So, Chip, to further the point, there is this pathologizing of people where the biomedical establishment looks at everyone through for profit purposes mm. of diagnosing everyone and medicating them. Problem. Deeper underlying problem. We aren't living the way we should be living. And it's a malfeasance. And that creates an illness for us. So it's a double-edged sword. And I kind of unravel that in the book because we are victimized by living by an old game plan that doesn't work. And then we're further victimized by being told there's something wrong with us and medicating us. Mm -hmm. It's a double whammy. Yeah. So the way through it is to simply break through and say, I'm not playing by this rule book any longer. You know, look at relationships. My first book was called The Art of Intimacy, The Pleasure of Passion. And mm -hmm. the point I make in that book is this. The fact that half of marriages end in divorce, that's not the problem. The problem is that the vast majority of intact marriages are far from happy. So if you think about it, only a small percentage of marriage thrives. If marriage were a corporation, it would be bankrupt. <laughs> so why would we continue to play by the same rules that creates all that failure? The problem here is in our education, nobody ever taught us emotional intelligence, mm. how to communicate, how to relate. This is the absolutely necessary education we need, more important than math and history and science, is how to relate and how to communicate. So we become victimized because we think everyone else is prospering. Well, they're not. But we suffer for this. And in this case, it's simply because we're not being taught the right things. And our educational system focuses on the wrong thing. Oh, you know, yeah. the teacher asks a question, your hand goes up because you think you have the right answer, and you get rewarded for having the right answer. Complete waste of time. Mm. Imagine an educational system where you get rewarded or get the best grade for asking the best question. Mm. The best question is a question that nobody immediately has an answer for. You see, that's generative. Mm -hmm. that, if you can teach kids a curiosity, and excitement about learning, the grades take care of themselves, but the system is backward. All they're focused on is give us the right answer so you can get the right grades so you can get into great colleges. Yeah. But there's no curiosity. That's right. It's Skinnerian, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Re reinforcement and, 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 and punishment. Very much yeah, so. I also, you know, and sorry, Tim, just a, a quick point. Because there are sometimes, you know, I, I have a radio show also. And that sometimes I like to do uh, tidbits of history or poetry or culture just so we can see where we've come from because, you know, we 
don't generally get a chance to see that on the main internet sites these days. Mm -hmm. It's all about how somebody's feeling or what they had for lunch. But I look at the history, you know, uh, because we're, we have a paranormal show. So we talk to people that are paranormalists in, in some major areas where a lot of history happened. But of course, a lot of history has happened in any state in this country or any country in the world. And it usually starts off with something, an offer of benevolence from one tribe to another. And then the more and more populated it gets, the more that benevolence goes away. And bad, bad things happen. But it seems that history, even in our educational system, seems to favor the victor and makes whoever uh, did not win secondary by nature. And it's almost from a very young age, it's okay for us to see other people as secondary to us because we're not the ones who planted the flag there. (laughs) And that's kind of adding along to the lines of what you're saying and adding to our sociological dysfunction as well, because imagine Chip, if the history books were written by the vanquished, mm-hmm. we'd have we'd have a different history. Yeah, oh, so, entirely. A brief anecdote about this: uh, my son was in my eldest son was in fifth grade uh, when uh, 19, uh, 1992, um, anniversary of Columbus's landing, huh? and. They were having a Columbus Day um, play in this school. And I got a call from his teacher. She needed to talk to me. So I went to school. I said, what's up? She said, your son Jesse has told us he will not participate in the Columbus Day parade. I said, did you ask him why? You're in the play. (laughs) I said, did you ask him why? I was baiting her. I I knew why. And she said, well, he told us that Columbus was, you know, he, he got into sex slave trade with children. He conquered people. He killed six million people. So why are we celebrating him? Right. I, I said, so what's the problem? And there it is. She, I had such consternation that she would call me into school rather than opening up this conversation with these children. Right? <laughs> right. There's an opportunity for learning. Yeah. You know, history, history boys and girls. The history is written by the the people who win, not the people who lose. And if it were different, we would have a different picture of Columbus. Mm -hmm. Or a different picture of uh, of every single person and their value, their real value. Because we would have more of an understanding of of what they were told growing up as as someone who was not a victor of something. Or someone who was a victim of all the things that Columbus actually did that you were... Uh, uh, right enough to, to which of course is the antithesis of no separation oneness mm-hmm. we all all is one because in that worldview there is no win lose right there's only win win <laughs> right because that that creates empathy you mm-hmm. see in relationships when I teach in separability it fosters um, empathy. And compassion. The problem is our language doesn't. Um, I, I'm on to a whole new um, mode of work, and I'm going to be giving a TEDx talk, I think in the coming months, maybe at MIT. There are eight words that we use in virtually every sentence that stunt our growth, make us struggle with uh, change, destroy our relationships, and block new learning. Now, can you guys guess what those eight words might be? 
I'm not even going to try. I'd rather hear you say. <laughs> they are the to be verbs. Is, am, were, was, be, been. All of those words are inert, fixed, and unchanged. <clears throat> they are Newtonian. Wow. And when we use those words, our beliefs and thoughts get stuck like cement. They also speak of objective reality. So in an argument, you say, you are such and such, are. I am not. She is. Mm. We need to speak subjectively. The quantum worldview is about subjective participatory reality. Mm -hmm. So if we learn to speak that way and we'd say, I feel, I think, I've learned to say, and part of my work, major theme in my book, is rather than letting my thought say the actual truth, you are, I would say to you, you know, while you were talking, Tim, I had a thought come up. Let me tell you what my thought was telling me. I didn't use a to-be verb in there. That was subjective, and you're open to hearing what I have to say. Right. You're not back on your heels. Right. So I believe that the reason we haven't shifted our worldview, the paradigm, from Newton to quantum physics is we are anchored and stuck in a language that continues to root our thinking wow. in Newton. It's there. It's the language that nails wow. us. Wow. That's fascinating. I, I, I bow to you for that. And, and someday, and Timmy and I, you know, because look, we talk to a lot of different people and because we cover some territory that is uh, paranormal or psychic or supernatural or extraterrestrial or whatever, the best way to gain information is to see the person's subjective uh, perspective of their experiences. Because if we ask them a simple yes or no answers or just took whatever facts, tick all the boxes, ma'am, you know, whatever the facts are, just the facts then we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't get this encompassing experience, you know. Plus, we've been in these industries long enough to know who's making stuff up, perhaps, for, uh, and I'll use the word ego just to make mm -hmm. the sentences easier. Or that, that you know, maybe they're, they're trying to appear more interesting than they think they are or something like that. You can kind of get that uh, dis, uh, disingenuine uh, vibe, but when it's palpable for them, you, you know, when the, you know that they're taking a risk in order to tell these stories, um, and it is from their subjective point of view, everybody learns, and then we can share our subjective points of view with them. It's like every person, and I'm sorry to use the word is, but I'm going to say it here, every person is a story, and every story fascinating, and if we get a chance to hear a person's story, then we know, A, more about people, and B, less to fear about people, <laughs> and it's a shared experience. So I was, at the time of learning about this change in language, and this, by the way, um, is called E-prime language. Um, there was a book written in the 1930s called General Semantics. You wouldn't even want to crack it open, about 600 pages, written by an engineer named Korbziski. And he created this concept of semantics without to-be verbs. So I was explaining this concept one night over dinner to some friends and their daughters at the table. And she was maybe 10 or 12 at the time. And she's listening to this intently. And she says, so Mel, if we don't use to-be verbs, would that mean there are no facts? 
and I smiled. Now, of course, this was before the advent of fake news. So my, my response to her was different then. I said, yes, the dictionary should have a preface. And it should say, at the time of the writing of this dictionary, this is our current understanding of all the words you will find, subject to change. When we were kids, there were our nine planets mm-hmm. that changed. There's not a planet. So those kind of facts can shift. Of course, that has nothing to do with the argumentation and absurdities we, that we see in politics today about um, facts, because there you want to you want to maintain some truth about what you just saw and say, well, listen, I just heard you say this. And if I say that now, you're going to call that fake news. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's just absurdity. D- yeah. Different feel entirely. Right. Now, I had yeah, a question. Did- I had a question about anxiety. Yes. Uh, is it safe to say that maybe one of the main causes of anxiety would be, you know, when you're growing up, when you're young, you're taught, you know, you got to get, you got to get education, you got to have a family, you got to have a good job, got to have a good retirement, got to be able to raise your children with enough income to support everybody. Mm-hmm. Would it be safe to say that anxiety is somehow connected to I, that? I, th- I think, Tim, firstly, anxiety is a word. And as a word, it means different things to all of us. you got to perform a certain way or you're taught to perform a certain way. Or do well, we, we can certainly say that that can either often create fear. Mm-hmm. Now, now, it would create fear because the fear would be, I don't know if I'm good enough right. or smart enough. I don't know if I can accomplish this. That creates a fear. And the fear would result in what we call anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another type or another facet of anxiety when your mind analyzes too much. Or not enough, yeah. Right? And you, me- and you measure yourself too much. Too much me- analyzing came to us from Newton's counterpart, Descartes, who said <laughs> if you analyze something to the nth degree, you come to the truth. Mm-hmm. So people who suffer from anxiety, many of them, I, I write in my book, it's akin to watching someone play chess. You know, you sit back, you deliberate, you think about every possible move. If I do this, what will happen? If I do this, what won't happen? You plod and you finally calculate and make a move. If you live life that way, that creates an enormous amount of anxiety. So coming back to your question, Tim, if I think I'm not good enough, mm-hmm. I'm not smart enough, I won't be successful enough to make a living, um, and my boss gives me a task to do, I might think, am I getting this wrong? Am I hearing him right? Am I smart enough? I remember what dad used to tell me, I'll never amount to anything. Right, right. Like you lose your center in your core. So what's lacking there is a genuine self-worth, the belief that, I'm okay. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room to be okay. So there are many different facets to anxiety, but let's say all of them have something to do with fear. And by the way, as a culture, we often worry about the consequences of our decisions and actions. Mm-hmm. If I do this, what will happen? Yeah, the what ifs. I, and, yeah. I, I, I have a great story in, my, in the possibility principle. I was working with somebody who was going to an Ivy League college and they took a leave of absence in their sophomore year 
because they couldn't choose a major because they were afraid they'd make a mistake and choose the wrong major. They were afraid of the consequence of the decision. So I asked her, are you concerned at all about the consequence of not making a decision? You're not in school. We orient toward the fear of what will happen if I do this. What about what will happen if I don't do this? You see, the inactivity is a profound consequence, but that's not the way our minds work. We don't think about that. Mm-hmm. If I'm in fear and don't do things, then I stall out. I'm stagnant. And that will lead to depression. Mm-hmm. And I think if we overanalyze something, we, we miss out. We can miss out on something greater. Well, if, you're, if you overanalyze, you, you're not present. So right. overanalyzing is like putting your eyes to the microscope. Mm-hmm. You can get some very specific information, but you've lost the big picture. Right. So that's called, I call that fragmented thinking. Actually, I won't take credit. <laughs> David Bohm, the great quantum physicist, called it fragmented thinking. Mm-hmm. And so that means not thinking and seeing in wholeness. When our thought splits off, for instance, some decades ago, uh, the EPA decided there was a certain pesticide that was too toxic for youth in this country. So they banned its use. But they allowed the pesticide manufacturer to export it to Latin America, who sprayed their crops with it, and then expa- exported it back to the United States. That's fragmented thinking. Mm. Or, to, or to think, you know, what happened in Chernobyl doesn't affect you here. <laughs> or when we talk about climate change. Right. It's fragmented thinking to say, well, I don't want to hurt our economy. But what planet is your economy going to operate on? <laughs> <laughs> so fragmented thinking is deeply analytical. It's focused on one narrow, often self-interested thing. Mm-hmm. It's not looking at the ripple effect. You know, the Native Americans traditionally had a way of looking at their actions and considering how it would impact seven generations forward. Mm-hmm. It's not the way we operate. No. Chip. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I wanted to kind of take Tim's question to a, another level, uh, because uh, look, I'm I'm I was always the the kid that people came to with their problems, you know, and and uh, junior high school and high school and beyond. Uh, but one thing that I do not believe that I had to deal with was any kind of abuse mm-hmm. in my family You're lucky. <laughs> or circle of friends, you know, and that uh, the more people I talk to today, the more of that of a rarity that seems. And though I'm very good at empathizing with people and try to try to put myself in their shoes as best as possible to look at a different uh a view of a, a solution, uh, then they may, you know, in their own shoes, be able to do. I still find that perhaps I cannot adequately help them. And uh, on the basis of uh, Timmy's question about anxiety, I do see a lot of people that even though years have gone by and they've developed into marvelous souls on their own, and have an awful lot that they could uh, be proud of, you know, leaving a good legacy behind, always in service to the greater good, things of that nature. Those voices always seem to come back and trigger them. 
the voices that say you're you're never you'll never amount to anything. You're not good enough. You're you're a failure. We don't like you. Um, so since we're taking Timmy's question and, and putting it along the lines of uh, perhaps a frame of thinking or frame of thought for people who might be listening who can say, well, yeah, I can do that. But then those voices, they always seem to come back. You know, Chip, I couldn't have wanted a better question. <laughs> no, you know, when you when you watch, you know, people on TV being interviewed, and someone says that was a great question, right? I often feel like they're saying that's a great question because they have a really ready answer for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was giving a talk once, and um, someone asked me a question, and I and I was perplexed, and I said, "That's a great question because." I don't have an answer, and that's the kind of question I look forward to. So I'm not going to con you here. Um, I have a ready answer for it, <laughs> and it, it, it helps highlight my approach. Um, but I would love questions where I don't have an answer, so maybe we can get to those. So well, we'll find a few of those for you. So I'm going to give you a somewhat long-winded answer, Fine. and I'm going to go to quantum physics okay. for how I came to my answer. Um, in physics, there is something called a wave collapse. Mm -hmm. Here's what that means in my understanding. And by the way, I just use the science as metaphor for life. Right. So light has, illogically, light has a dual capacity. Mm -hmm. Light can exist as a wave or as a particle. Mm -hmm. Quantum physics, when light is a wave, the wave represents pure potentiality. But when the light is observed, the observation creates what is called a wave collapse. The light wave collapses and becomes a particle, a fixed thing. So I had a thought, huh, something similar happens to us. Either when you're born, or if you believe in reincarnation before you're born, or astrology, but at some point in our lives, we come into life in a state of more or less pure potentiality, absolute possibility. But things happen, typically in childhood. Mm -hmm. Some of them are traumatic, like abuse. Some of them are far more subtle, but they impact us. And when these things happen, our wave of potential collapses, and we start to create a fixed idea of ourselves mm -hmm. and our personality. And I call these in my book confining, confining wave collapses. They narrow our identity. I'll give you an example. Working with a woman who recounts that when she was maybe eight or nine years old, her mother shared with her that her pregnancy with her was an accident. She was unplanned. So this child came to believe that she, mom and dad didn't want her. She wasn't lovable, and she was less than. A, a subtle but profound wave collapse. Mm -hmm. Now her marriage was at risk because she wouldn't believe she was worthy of love. Her self-esteem never became what it should. So I asked her, what would have happened? How different would you have felt about yourself if your mom never said that to you? I tried to show her that her core belief about herself, I'm not lovable, I'm not worthy. That's a belief. Where did the belief come from? 
it came from a wave collapse. Now, once we can identify the wave collapse, and to your question, Chip, it, these wave collapses would be about abuse, mm-hmm. of whatever kind of abuse. Now, once we come to understand that the core belief about ourselves relates to that wave collapse, now my work is to help people see that they have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of thoughts that conform to that primary belief, different versions of it. I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm different than everyone else. What I then do is I take the reader through an experience where you can learn to see your thought and not become the thought. And that's what I call thinking. Now, nobody ever taught us how to do it. I kind of stumbled across it by combining philosophy and quantum physics and doing my own alchemy, but thankfully I found a way. So I've learned and teach others that if you hear a knock at the door, someone knocking at the door, you can get up and answer it or not. We can do the same thing with thought. So when you have the thought coming from the wave collapse, the damaging thought, you can learn to see that thought. And if you can see it, then you're free. In the nanosecond between your thoughts, you exist in a state of pure potential. But if we keep having the same old thought, we're stuck in the groove. So I take that nanosecond and I turn it, I elongate it so it feels a lot longer. And I do that through language. I'm having a thought. Let me tell you what my thought is telling me. (laughs) So somebody comes to you and talks about how they feel because they were abused, break it down. Your thought makes sense. We know where it comes from, a wave collapse. Now, what I'm trying to do is to create what I call a defining moment. A defining moment, like on my car ride home that day deciding I had to change my career. Defining moment. Mm -hmm. Defining moment is I see the confining wave collapse. I see the thought that's trapping me. And I stop. And I say, I'm going to choose a new direction. And that's when you break free. And it works. See, that's why you're doing TEDx speaking. My closest thing to TEDx is deciding not to buy a Ted Cruz porn film, you know. (laughs) 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 But I digress. Well, if he was in it, I certainly wouldn't want to see it. I wouldn't want to Uh, see it either. At least not his face, though, you know. That's a different story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of went off topic a little bit, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Well, you know, had to get some little... Yeah. Uh, you had to get it out. Comic relief in there. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I, I I can see that. I, I understand that. It's it's like saying it's it's never too late to have a, a personal epiphany, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but again, you know, the problem is, do we believe that it's possible? And again, no one ever showed us how. All right. You know, to make to make change or considerable change in your life, you have to, number one believe it's possible. Right. And then two, um, people often have the intention to make change, but the intention by itself isn't enough. Right. It's often lacking what I call willfulness. Mm-hmm. You need to combine willful with intention. Mm-hmm. So the way to envision that is you're out at sea and you're in a sailboat and you want to move, so you hoist the sail. That's your intention. But if there's no wind in the cell, you're not going anywhere. And 
part of the stock process is that avoiding uncertainty keeps us stuck. Right. So well, we put too many conditions on our own happiness or our, our own uh, what resolutions or yeah. Well, so the, yeah. So the wind in the sail, the willfulness, if you will, is to <clears> embrace <throat> uncertainty because what keeps people stuck is, well, I can't be sure how it'll work out. So in in my TEDx talk, I spoke about working with a woman who is mired in a miserably unhappy marriage, and. But financially independent, no children. They tried marital counseling. It didn't work. And I said, so why do you stay married? Well, For the I, kids? Don't, I don't, no kids. No I, don't, I don't know how, who I would be hmm. if I were divorced. So her fear of uncertainty, which would have possibility of relief, hmm. she'd rather stay in the familiarity of miserable hmm. than open to the daunting experience of uncertainty. And that's what traps us. People will stay rooted in unhappiness because it's familiar. Mm -hmm. Setting yourself free is daunting because it's out of your familiar zone. See how we get trapped in the familiar. Right. 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 But it's like, we, I mean, we talk about uh, fear so much, yeah. again, because of the paranormal and this and that. But if you looked at through a filter of fascination, you know, then the, it opens you up to so many discoveries. So, so I, I want to ask you guys a question. Let me interview for a moment. You just mentioned the fear of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. um, could you give me a simple description or definition of what you mean by paranormal? Yeah, it, uh, does it matter who answers first? Tim, you want to go? Something that's unexplainable? Something they don't understand? Oh, like love. Yeah. <laughs> could be. Yeah. Or something yeah. you see or something you feel. Okay. So something that isn't confirmed or makes sense right. to rational, cognitive Western science. Fair enough. Or religion, yeah. Yeah. So if I could make a suggestion, we do ourselves a disservice. And I know... This is going to rub against the grain because this is your work. But using the word paranormal subordinates the experience. Mm -hmm. It's almost like alternative medicine. Start to change the complementary medicine. In other words, well, instead of, I would like to use a word like, you know, supernormal. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, yeah. Um, see, I, I usually use it when I talk about ghosts and spirits because we talk metaphysics, we talk alternative he healing, you know, we talk uh, uh, non-human intelligent contact, which could be uh, extraterrestrials or fairies or, or werewolves or whatever. But mm -hmm. generally, to, at least to me, the paranormal is just kind of a way of boxing in a ghost or spirit activity uh, per se. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, it's, it's just we get confined. Remember before when I talked about victimizing the victim. So if we're struggling, but it's the culture and thinking that creates the struggle. So that my, my inclination is to begin with is to believe in everything. Mm -hmm. And then I might narrow it down and choose the things not to believe in. But arguably, you know, I'll believe in anything until I see reason why not to. Like. Right. Let's, let's look at SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm 
Mm-hmm. How freaking insane. If we, <laughs> if, if we can find them first, then that's okay. And that's verifiable. But if they are here and find us first, then you know, we, we have to abuse that. And we have to say, you know, that's woo-woo thinking. Right? <laughs> but if, if we find them first, then it's all right. That exposes the whole mythology right there, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Okay. And I think it's so important for us to unravel this. You know, uh, someone's running for president and they believe in UFOs and they're discredited. I would turn it around and say, sometimes, sometimes the term conspiracy theorist, someone said to me once, are you a conspiracy theorist? They said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> don't, don't you believe in conspiracies? <laughs> I said, government, war, business conspire together for nefarious reasons. That's what a conspiracy is. We gain power when we don't fall prey to the manipulation of language. Mm-hmm. So rather than say, I am a conspiracy theorist or defend myself and say, no, I'm not, I step into it. I do, I do some consulting on occasion uh, in the political realm. And when I do that consulting for politicians, I say, don't defend, step in. So I was doing some consulting for someone who uh, was a progressive and helping him prep for a debate. And I said, listen, in the debate, if they call you a progressive, step in and say, yeah, progress is good. So you believe in going back to the way things used to be. I would call that regressive. So you know what? <laughs> I am a progressive and I'm going to call you a regressive. Is that okay? In other words, <laughs> it is so important for us to not defend. You know, I remember, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Obama against McCain or okay. Kerry against Bush. And the charge of you're a socialist, and this is going to come back now, of course. Oh, question. yeah, big time. And, and to say, well, wait a minute. I did use a public highway to get here. Mm-hmm. And I used the U.S. mail. And my kids go to public school. So, and then to say, so that doesn't make me a communist. And by the way, socialism and capitalism do work hand in hand. So if that's what you mean, you're right. <laughs> and if you got here on a private jet, and you didn't use a highway or a tunnel or a bridge to get here, then you're right, you don't believe in socialism. So how'd you get here? <laughs> in other words, it, it, it is so easy to get past getting siloed right. into these labels. So, you know, just going back to the paranormal thing, you know, if I said that there was life and things happening that are so small you couldn't see it, you would have imprisoned me until we created a microscope. Mm-hmm. And the search for life often is should say it's a search for life as we know it and as we understand it to be. Mm. Right. Yeah. Now, so I was just curious about your work in regard yeah. to the paranormal. When you said woo woo, it kind of reminded me to uh, a guest that we often have on a show, uh, Thomas Fusco. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He says that it's not a ghost or spirit. It's information. It's non-local information. Non-local, yeah, becoming new... local. Yeah. yeah. So if we look at the word information, we could break it down to in-form-ation. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's, the, the word actually speaks that. But, you know, I don't know if I uh, completely believe what I'm about to say, but I'm just testing it as I'm saying it. Consciousness 
couldn't consciousness look like information? Mm -hmm. Consciousness is a collecting of energy, perhaps on a personal level, perhaps on a collective level. I'm not smart enough to know. I know that when I'm incarnate in this form, I think of it as a personal level. I believe in entanglement and oneness. So I know that there's a collective quality as well. I have every belief that consciousness does not require a brain. Mm -hmm. So when when people don't understand, here's the analogy I give, which, you know, feel free to use. It may be helpful. I said, if you're walking at the beach and you look behind you and you see your footprint in the sand, you wouldn't think the sand produced your footprint. You left your mark in the sand. Mm. Thought and feeling leave their mark on the brain. The brain doesn't produce consciousness. Now, I understand that new science is beginning to confirm this, but the near-death experience, which probably is not the right term, but near-death experience, flatline brain activity Mm -hmm. for any length of time, and yet the consciousness continued and survived because they recount exactly what happened. Memory. The words that were said, doesn't that indicate that consciousness does not require a brain? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then consciousness is a universal, if not the universal force. See, our whole belief about health is, even amongst those who call themselves holistic thinkers, it's still backward. Let's just look at the placebo effect. So science accepts that your mind can trick you. And therefore, the placebo can be pretty much as effective as the medication. And they leave it there. Oh, wait a minute, guys. If that's so, then we don't need the medication. We can teach the mind to heal us. But we would lose how many trillion dollars in pharmaceuticals? Yeah, there's no money in that, right? Right. Or people will say, it's just in your mind as a limiting way. And a limiting way. And I'll say... Well, of course it's in my mind. And what's in my mind is in my body. And what's in my body is in my mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think that there's so much more openness and exploration that can be done in the paranormal field once we start to break down the words mm-hmm. that restrict us. Because people are afraid to share their beliefs if they think that they are wayward or not in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's why we do the kind of work we're doing. We're trying to kind of demystify certain things and and make it make it okay to share these subjective experiences first of all. But more uh, look, I mean personally, and and I'll use the word paranormal only to simplify. You know, my experiences with ghosts or spirits. Yes. You know, for almost forty years now, have never been negative, and I I'm basically almost alone in that you know because it's not like people wake up one day and say i'm gonna start ghost hunting today it's because something happened to them or somebody they cared about Mm. either from a young age on up where they had to find what this is but the way it's presented in media is always terrifying the way they you know and the movies i mean forget about it in real life it's it's dull really if not unremarkable things that happen and every once in a while, you come across some things that you can't explain, which we reasonably try to find every possible uh, natural reason for this 
kind of event, right? But it, it comes down to that it doesn't always have to be scary and negative, or just because something's there doesn't automatically make it sinful and demonic and out to get you and suck your life force dry and push you down a flight of stairs. Benevolent things happen in these realms, you know. They don't have to be scary mysteries. They can be fascinating mysteries. Well, it, again, it's the fear of the unknown. Yeah. Just like the woman who wouldn't get divorced because of the fear of the unknown. Right, I, right. We have fear of the unknown. But by the way, I have a term that I would use if I were in your field. I would switch from paranormal to extra normal. Extra normal or super normal. Yeah, yeah. We just, it's a hermetic law of balance. You know, the, the laws of the universe are talking about oneness. Oh, so great. The laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. I wrote a letter to the op-ed page of the New York Times. They had an article called The Laws of the Universe. And I wrote them a letter, which they did publish. And I said, gentlemen, there are no laws of the universe. Laws are human-made. Mm -hmm. that's, anthrop <laughs> that's called anthropomorphic. When you take human qualities and impute them onto the universe, we created laws. The universe doesn't have laws. A court has laws. A country has laws. Stop with the laws of the universe. And by the way, if you think they are laws, why do they keep changing? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> why do they? Good point. Yeah, but it was the the central idea of of balance. Mm -hmm. You know, so for anything that makes you feel less than human, less than normal, less than perfect, uh, within this uh, uh, anthro. For, uh, <laughs> anthropomorphic anthropomorphic uh, basis for balance there would have to be something that makes you superhuman super normal you know you, uh, you, uh, I, I had a intriguing conversation with someone recently um, who proposed to me that the only thing that is real is love well you know the opposite of love probably is fear. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, all the isms and hatred, they all come from fear. Mm -hmm. Could be fear of the other, fear that I'm not good enough, but fear. So it, the way our minds operate is we're taught to think in opposites because that's how we construct reality. Mm -hmm. um, comes to us from Aristotle. So yeah. um, we wouldn't understand the word night if there wasn't day. We wouldn't understand the word love if there wasn't fear or hate. So these are just words, but to use the word just to tune into the energy. What does the word evoke for us? Um, so going back to paranormal, the word for many people may evoke fascination, curiosity, and fear. Intrigue, but intrigue, if it's conceptual, but if you put a ghost in my house, then I'm afraid. All right. Yeah, well, we'll take care of it for you, though. Interesting. <laughs> well, you know, I, you, you're the Ghostbuster. Basically. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I've had a good deal of um, experiences that are not normal. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I'm open to everything. It, it, it's, cool. it's just some, some fascinating things that... that uh, you know, in this day and age, especially in the age of Internet, you know, and almost too much information everywhere mm -hmm. can can uh, become normalized in a in kind of a good way. I mean, I want to be uh, and you, 
I think you'll probably understand this reference, the Leo Biscaglia, you know, of, of the supernormal world, if you will. Uh, because there is a love-based side to all of these things. If you find them, they can be found. You know, I, the day that my book, The Possibility Principle, was published, I was interviewed, I think he was in Canada, uh, and you would know the name, it escapes me at the moment, he had over 300 radio stations, and their work was all about the paranormal. Oh, yeah, the uh, the X guy. Um, and, yeah, I know who you're talking about. And yeah, I can't tell you how many books we sold by that one, <laughs> because his audience and you know his, his field of inquiry had nothing to do with my book, but he put me on. <laughs> Um, and I can't recall his name, but he he must have had tens of millions of listeners based on the book sales I got that night. Nice. Wow. Well, we hope we can do, uh, outdo that today. Chip, Chip, <laughs> okay. We'll go for it. Chip, this person we're talking about, wasn't he on Studio B on our old network? No, no. This is it's a Canadian guy, and, okay. and I, I know he's got magazines and publications and radio stations all over the place. Okay. I think it's Mel something, that, but I know who he's talking about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you guys ready yeah. to take a break? Sure, we can sure. do this. Okay. It's your show. Yeah. <laughs> you are listening to The Supernatural Realm with our guest, Mel Schwartz. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. <laughs> What is the supernatural realm exactly? Why do people have paranormal or mystical experiences? There's some science behind it they're not looking at. Why do some people have negative encounters and others don't? What are the best methods to use and is there some new truth to them? We'll ask these questions on the hit radio show, Supernatural Realm with Tim Roxbury, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your co-host Chip Reichenthal. Supernatural Realm, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 Eastern, leading into Michael Vera's late night in the Midlands at 9, right here on WCTFM, because that's where the action is. Oh, coast to coast. Okay, yeah. I was thinking of something completely different. What are we really made and then I tell you, it was a falling shot. All right. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to, I guess I'll take this in, in a, a different, uh, kind of a different direction. Um, I'm bringing up because we, we are, uh, by the way, our honored guest today, Mel Schwartz, um, a uh, psychotherapist, marriage counselor, TEDx speaker, corporate leadership and communications consultant, the author of the possibility principle how quantum physics can improve the way you think live and love and we boy we've been exploring into that uh thus far in, into the show now his graduate degree from columbia university his tedx talk breaking free from anxiety receives over fifty thousand views per month he's written over 100 articles read by more than 3 million people 
one of the first practicing psychotherapists to integrate the principles of quantum physics into a transformative therapeutic approach. He practices in Westport, Connecticut, uh, Manhattan, and globally uh, via FaceTime. Uh, the great Mel Schwartz, our honored guest today. Um, I, I'm going to, I, I just wanted to uh, kind of go here for a moment. Uh, I was a, a, a psych major, you know, it was like a lifetime ago. <laughs> uh, but still, you know, I had a relative that had uh, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I, in essence, went to school to cure them. Best course I ever had was called Culture and Psychopathology. <clears throat> and in it, they, they cited a, 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 a tribe, a primitive tribe, you know. <laughs> oh, those primitives, what are they? I might have been in New Guinea, although I'm, I'm not sure. But they cited a case where uh, they had uh, a woman in this tribe that had a psychotic break. They called it running amok, I suppose. And so her behavior was very, uh, very different. You know, she was uh, uh, destroying other people's huts and things of that nature. And uh, but the long story short is, so what they did in this case is they sent her to the shaman or medicine man of the tribe. And what they did is they had the entire community come together, this entire tribal community come together. Nobody blamed her for her behavior, didn't hold it against her, wasn't her fault that she had this thing. Instead, they assessed it to a spirit of the elements. Could have been the, the harsh wind or something, <laughs> but it wasn't an evil spirit or a, a, a good spirit. It was just a, an incidental spirit. So the entire community danced and prayed and, and drummed and chanted you know, um, to exorcise, uh, in essence, this, this psychotic break from this woman and succeeded in less than a season's worth of time. Over time, they discovered that <clears throat> for a cure ratio for psychotic conditions in these, uh, these primitive tribes, all of those primitives, what do they know, was 80% often in a season's worth of time or less. Or in this culture, uh, I think the cure rate is something like 7% and the average time is 27 plus years. And we were talking about love, you know, uh, uh, versus fear not long ago. And I just re always really liked that example because it, it, it demonstrates the healing power of, of love, you know. <laughs> And I, I just wanted to see if you'd have any kind of comment on, on that idea, both between indigenous versus uh, Western cultures, if you will, or just the, the, the healing power of love. Well, my first thoughts on that, Chip, are that um, the healing power of the group, um, to me, speak to the amplified power through inseparability or oneness which is we've seen studies that indicate that when a number of people pray for someone there may be measurable results mm -hmm. um, and that's even at a distance now if i think of indigenous cultures and the story you just shared you know everyone's in proximity 
So there's a shift in the energy field. Mm-hmm. Um, we see, we, I've seen studies in regard to that in regard to people who meditate and meditate for peace. And we can mm-hmm. call that the equivalent of love. Mm-hmm. And there are demonstrable, measurable outcomes from that. So coming back to the way we live, which using the Bohmian term again is fragmented, we live in separation, mm-hmm. and separation induces much more fear. The loss of community in our lives is not life enhancing. It can be devastating, it's isolating. So the, just my natural instinct is that the community in itself is healing. The healing power of the community when they pray or meditate or come from a heart spirit together is immeasurable. You know, the collective of an ant colony, swarm theory, the collective intelligence of an ant colony is superordinate. It's not just a multiplier of the individual ants. Something else happens. Right. I think that's what you're describing. Yeah, and it it acts, the entire community basically acts as one brain. I mean, you know, especially from an outside looking in perspective, you know, especially size-wise, when you get to see, I guess what I'll call a nest mentality, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, every single ant in that group has a purpose, a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. And it is not only an individual purpose, but it serves the group also and all go to serve the greater good. But they all function as this one mind. And it's just really as you fascinating. Watch, as you watch a flock of birds mm-hmm. turn as as one in unison, there's no signal being sent mm-hmm. back and forth between them. So um, they're operating in oneness. See, the concept of synchronicity, I find profoundly exciting and intriguing. Mm-hmm. It's the equivalent of your interest, perhaps, in paranormal. Um, and synchronicity goes beyond the normal. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to share um, a story. Please. Um, many years ago, I'm in... Um, <laughs> Mexico on vacation at Christmas time, having a delightful vacation with my family. But it's when the tsunami hits Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And I see a report in the Times that say there was no reported death of wildlife. Animals had the sixth sense and they knew it was coming and they got the high ground. Mm-hmm. So I went up to my room in the hotel to write an article. And I start to write that humans once had the sixth sense. Mm-hmm. But um, it, was, it was driven out of us through reason, rational discourse. We lost that integrative way of knowing. Mm-hmm. As I'm writing the article, a bird flies in the open window and perches itself on the armrest of the chair that I'm sitting on, which in and of itself would have been, what the hell? That's <laughs> never happened. <laughs> but here, I'm writing about this. And so it's kind of spine tingling. Carl Jung would have called that numinous, which meant it has a personal message and quality. It's my mind and the material universe temporarily acting as one. So I send an email to a colleague who's just written a book on synchronicity. I want to share this. He writes back and he says, well, that's a great example of synchronicity, Mel, but it goes further. He said, when I opened your email, Mel, I was reading a book called How Animals Can Predict Earthquakes, 
written by the British biologist Rupert Sheldrake. Oh. Now, Sheldrake developed the concept of morphic fields, which is he explored how the homing pigeons know how to get home, right? Yeah. And he ca came to believe that the lived experience of a species remains in a field that's available. So he suggested I get in touch with Dr. Sheldrake, which I did. Wow. And Sheldrake and I ended up giving a shared um, talk and presentation at Yale on the confluence of synchronicity in his work and in my work. So you wow. see, the synchronicity wow. just keeps going. Wow. Yeah, that's that. Wow. Yeah, I would. I would <laughs> love. To, I would love for Rupert Sheldrake to be a guest here on a Supernatural World. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you might write to him. Um, I, years ago, I tried to explain to him the concept of E prime language, speaking mm -hmm. without the to be verb, right. um, which he, he wasn't receptive to it. But he was in one of the original dialogue groups facilitated by David Bohm, the quantum physics physicist. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you should write to him. But, you know, I would I would look to put it in terms of that your show explores evidence of things just like his research mm -hmm. because his research into morphogenic fields um, could have a comparability to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'd look to, to align the two things to try to intrigue him. Right. But, and, you know, you, 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 if you write to me, I'll send you his email address. Okay. Yeah, it just says, as you do and, and as York does, it, it compromises what we talk about here on our show. That's right. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, we've been talking with uh, some some folks that uh, work f uh, in this foundation that represents uh, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, sixth man to walk on the moon. And you know, after he stepped on the moon, you know, and saw the saw this this uh, this yeah. planet and this world from a completely different perspective, and came home a changed man. And by the way, didn't he also say that he had seen a UFO? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, he did. And in fact, he started the Institute for Noetic Sciences. That was well, him that well, started well, that. Which is IONS is just a great organization, right? And, and it does uh, great work. And has the quantum holographic theory, which uh, similar to uh, one of our former guests, Thomas Fusco, mm -hmm. is basically uh, a way of uh, a finding uh, consciousness as an actual energy form. And their proposal, they consider it, they're not string theorists per se, but it's like a, a semi-string kind of energy rather than an actual particular, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're actively continuing on the, uh, this theory and they have a, a, a few exceptional uh, physicists it, that have been working on it. It's all very exciting work, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. And it, it helps us in our field, too, you know, because we, we have to look at things well, like uh, telekinesis or, or t uh, telepathy, clairvoyance and, and things like that and look at them and, and look at the uh, perhaps the, the morphic <laughs> explanations for that, if you will, or at least how cool they are. Timmy? You got uh, I was waiting for... Um Wait for Mel to maybe interject there. <laughs> <laughs> but Chip, do you have anything else? 
Yeah, I was I was thinking I had the point when he was talking about when the bird appeared, mm-hmm. um, and I can't remember what what it was, but it was a really really good question. Um, um, but I I I do think though, again back to the filter that we walk around through that is uh, love or fear, mm-hmm. you know, and and. Now, one, one day, I, I had this really bad headache, and I'm trying to watch TV, and I wanted to watch something calming, you know, or maybe something that, you know, that was such a beautiful story, it would inspire, inspire tears in me, you know. If I'm going to cry at a movie, I want something good and magical to happen, you know, <laughs> not because I'm totally depressed or scared. <laughs> And there's got to be 8,000 channels, you know, I got 600 movies, you know, and then internet and everything. I couldn't find one thing. Um, and, and it just seems that, you know, that, I mean, there is a, an entire uh, love-based perspective to all of our lives. Every given day has moments of joy in them. Uh, but we seem to drum in each other the the what ifs you know what is shoulda couldas you know the the more more mores and and uh, and then it's hard to find uh, uplifting stories in a way that makes them interesting we all want to drive by in slow motion that car wreck so we can get a close up look right you know and uh, oh I know what it was it was uh, collective consciousness because you're talking about collective consciousness and it was part of that. I think that experience, and, and the, you pointed out that uh, when we were talking about uh, the, the, this, uh, the, the, the tribal group and, and how their entire community would come together. You know, you mentioned conspiracy theories earlier. <laughs> I'm not a conspiracy guy because that requires more than one selfish person <laughs> to follow along a collective line and because, you know, uh, it could exponentially go wrong, you know. So the philosopher uh, Sartre, right, said hell is other people. But but collective consciousness, to me, uh, see, I believe that. I, I think that, you know, there could be ways where if we all, you know, somehow collectively at, at 7.30 p.m., you know, just took 10 seconds out to send a positive and loving thought just out, you know. There was, there was a collective consciousness. the world could change. Yeah, there was but, a collective consciousness the day of creation. Oh, there you go. Because, you know, the three said, let us. That's a collective consciousness right there. You know, a good example of it, at least. Yeah. But do you, do you have any, do you... Do, is, is there any, well, I guess hope would be kind of an extreme word to use uh, to you, Mel, but um, is it, do, you th- do you think that there would be ways to just generally improve the nature of daily life, you know, by having some sort of exercise like that? And of course, this is just a, a hypothetical question, but it's still a question nonetheless. Did we lose Mel? I don't know. Maybe I bored him to death here. <laughs> so uh, he, says, he says he's here, but I don't see him. Yeah. Huh. Well, what do you think, Tim? Oh, we're waiting for a minute. 
What was unless you? What was your question again? That's uh, well, he he would we were talking about synchronicities and morphic fields, and we had talked about conspiracies kind of early on. Uh, mentioned by definition, it would have to be if you get a group of people together doing something nefarious. That's a, by definition a conspiracy. But, but to me, you get you know if they're doing nefarious things, then they're ultimately selfish people to begin with, and so you know it's hard to get a successful conspiracy in my eyes. That's just me. Yeah, I, I'm a minority in that. But a collective consciousness, uh, not necessarily a collective consciousness belief. But a collective consciousness experiment. Mm -hmm. If we got everybody at 7.30 at night, wherever they were, to just take 10 seconds, feel really good, and send that feeling out. You know? Yeah. If we had some sort of set way, like back, I'm old, so back in the day, everybody used to sit around and watch the evening news at 6.30 p.m. Because that's basically when dinner was anyway. We only had three channels, you know? So it was like Walter Cronkite. Uh, or two other guys that you could watch, but that's what everybody did, you yeah. know. Or everybody used to watch the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Kids used to, you know, stay up late and disobey their parents so they could, you know, stay up late and watch Johnny. Carson. I mean, when's the last time we thought of everybody doing something? Yeah. Right? Except maybe Game of Thrones, but you know, I wasn't there. I'm not a Game of Thrones guy. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Right. Right. So just you know, throw that into the wind and have. People just, you know, let's do this for like the uh, the month of April, <laughs> you know, 730, whatever time period you're at, you know, just do it uh -huh. and see if you can track anything. They've done experiments with collective consciousness. They did. You know? Yeah, Mel, Mel's looking a little tired. Maybe he just, you know, <laughs> fell asleep on a mic or something. I don't know. I don't know. So I guess uh, I guess he's not with us then. Oh, uh, he's not here. I don't I don't see him. All righty. Well, I guess we can either wait for him to come back or not. We should at least tell people uh, where they can find more about Mel Schwartz since they've been uh, listening for a while. You listening for yeah the majority of the program. Um, he's got his uh, a, a website Mel schwartz.com that's easy enough to find m-e-l s-c-h-w-a-r-t-z mel schwartz.com and uh you can find his books also on on amazon uh the big one really the possibility principle how quantum physics can improve the way you think live and love uh it's been out uh, about a year and a half now but it has rocked the uh uh, both uh, psychology and psychiatry fields, you know, it, it has even rocked the, the the physics world, you know. I think they, you know, like to be compared to psychology instead of religion just once, you know. <laughs> so, so they're in, in that too. And, and it really gives a lot of credit to Newton, you know, uh, and the standard model because that, that has kind of, Defined the ways that we think, and because of the ways in which we think are are uncertain, you know that that would uh, at least uh, reductively describe how many of us are anxious or have anxiety. 
you know. Yep. But I don't think he liked the fact that we were talking about paranormal. I mean, I could be wrong, but <laughs> I mean, I don't oh, know. I. Well, he has to. Well, no, he just wanted to redefine it because, again, it's like um, giving it some some name that that has a more magical meaning than a fearful one. Yeah. Because we hear paranormal and we think, uh oh, you know, evil, scary, nasty things. Mm-hmm. And he says, if we call it extra normal, then maybe we're more inclined to look at it with fascination rather than fear. Yeah, I I, I agree with. You know everything he said. It's just a shame that he kind of, kind of left us like that. You know, but well, it could be that we still have this uh, Mercury retrograde going on. You know, that just wants to make sure it makes itself known one more time before it leaves. <laughs> <laughs> or Mr. Murphy said, "Hey, my law. You remember Murphy's law, don't you? You know." Yeah. I, I'm sure it's nothing that happened per- purposefully. He was having a wonderful time with us, you know, telling, telling some marvelous stories. But it's interesting, really, to think. I mean, you know, look, we've talked to a lot of people that that have, uh, uh, in one degree or other, some sci- uh, psychoanalysis or psychology or psychiatry in their background, but are also, you know, shamanics or alternative healers or whatever. Here's a guy who... Uh, you know, took some uh, quantum physics uh, terminology, mostly as metaphors, and and applied it to a practice that is that is patient and understanding and loving. And you know, I have a very dim view of the mental health industry. You know that. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I I like what the, he had to say, but I also have seen how his book and his TEDx talks have had really taken the psychology industry, if you will, by storm. And that's a very difficult thing to do in this day and age, mm-hmm. you know, especially, I mean, you know, to, let's you and I'll use the word paranormal again, you know, when's the last time somebody took the paranormal world by storm? Everybody and their mother has a theory about it, you know? <laughs> so who's, who's rocked it, you know, yeah. aside from you and me and, Maybe Thomas Fusco with his super geometry, you know, the, yeah. the non-locality thing, you know. But, uh, but really, I, I, and and it and it is a lot of food for thought. It just seems Timmy so easy for us to change, you know, the the frame of our anxiety, of our depression, of our disdain, our disconcertion, our unhappiness, because we put all these expectations on our happiness. Well, I'm happy, but I'd be happier if, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, no, just be happy. What's wrong? Why can't you just be happy? What's wrong with just being happy? You know, I'm sad, but I'd be less sad if, or I'm sad and I'm really, I not, not only am I sad, but I suck at it. So I'm a, I can't even be sad. Right. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing that when we're alone, that's where our minds go. Because of just social pressures or, or uh, how the media makes us think or, or government or religion. Or, well, that's or, you that's know. why I would like to have heard more, more about his work because there's so many people out there who are suffering from um, mental illness of some sort, whether it be depression or anxiety or, you know, extreme yeah. cases, uh, you know, what was it? 
PTSD or whatever. So, yeah, PTSD, I mean, ADHD. ADHD, yeah. yeah. So, but, I mean, you know, so but many he said some things early on that resonated with me, you know, because, you know, we always talk about, you know, if you go to, to see somebody for a diagnosis, and he says you can see six different shrinks and get six different diagnoses, you know. Yeah, and I'm, and it's I'm no sure. different than, than our field, you know. You go see a medium because you want to hear from your grandmother, and you'll get... So you see six different mediums, you'll get six different messages, you know, six different ways to frame these messages. Because right. first and foremost, every single person has their own different independent beliefs, preconceptions, biases, reality, etc. So I said, even, even the diagnosis itself isn't a diagnosis, it's a concept, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like, uh, well, you know, you have toaster now. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I guess I'm burned. You know, it, uh, um, yeah, I think you know. But but my thing was you know, the more they reshape these diagnoses, they always manage to get words like disorder in there. You know, uh, I I don't know. I think everybody's bipolar to to one means or another. You know. Uh, have you ever met somebody that's always in the same mood every single day in their life? No, you know, and and sometimes they're exceptionally excited and sometimes they're exceptionally depressed. It's what I call it humanity. So I call it bipolar disorder, you know, yeah. because it separates you from yourself and it separates you from your community and it allows you to really, really believe that there is something wrong with you. And you, and you you aren't unique. You're different. <laughs> and there's a big difference, you know. Yeah. Unique is a great thing. Different, you know, could box you in. Mm-hmm. And away from my neighborhood, damn it. I know. was told by a female friend back 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 when this must have been 15 years ago. She said she said I was uniquely strange. I didn't know. I didn't know at the time whether to take that as a compliment or. I think that's a that would I would that, take it as a compliment. Yeah, at the time I didn't know what to think, you know. But right. looking, back, looking back on it, you know. Well, I think if she said you're a freak, then that that, <laughs> that would be, be an insult. You know? yeah. Uniquely strange means you're wonderfully strange. Yeah. You know, at least. Uh, and he was told, he would brought up this book about semantics that was written what uh, you know some uh, hundred and fifty years ago or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was familiar with that book. You know, semantics has to give specific meanings to every single thing. And uh, I like the fact he was he was mentioning David Bohm a lot because Thomas he was David. Well, yeah. the, the, Thomas the uncertainty. Yeah, well, yeah. uncertainty is part of the work in, in, in Mel's book, the yeah. possibility principle, how quantum physics can improve the way you think, live, and love uh, through Amazon.com or MelSchwartz.com. Uh, but, yeah, uncertainty is, is one of those big things. And he even lumped in Bohm with Carl Gustav Jung, mm-hmm. you know. And he's a young and Look, I was a psychology guy, you know. Uh, I, I was a Freud guy for a while. Because Freud was the first one out with all this crap, okay? <laughs> but he was brilliant because you couldn't prove or disprove it, you know? It was like Einstein in the 80s, you know? Einstein now, I mean, f- physicists are proving just about everything that he came up with, with the exception of that the universe is constant. And they're saying, no, it's expanding, which he himself called his uh, the biggest blunder of his work. Mm. 
But Sigmund Freud, you can't go up to a five-year-old uh, kid and say, hey, do you want to rape your mother and kill your father? You know, <laughs> and the kid would just say, I just want to watch Barney, you know. Uh, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, and and Freud did like lots of sex, 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 everything sex with Freud, you know. Jung, on the other hand, was just, I mean, there was just all sorts of wild kind of, uh, layers to his work and he was very deep and very gothic you know you see a lot of kids that call themselves emos or goths now yeah they're picking up Jungian principles you know so so there is that and yeah so here's Mel who's more of a Carl Gustav Jung guy but uh, and using David Bohm you know yeah. uh, and there, there's some brilliance to it yeah. I mean what, if you like both of the realms, he's doing something different with it, you know, and he's staying away from the labeling and, and things of that nature. But he's taking a concept of, of uh, modern science, you know, and giving it credibility toward behavioral science. And that's a fascinating thing, you know. Guy deserves a nod for that. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a great guest. He, he interacted with us, but then, you know, yeah. Well, maybe a signal went out, you know. I mean, I mean, his yeah. his his Skype is shut off. I mean, he's 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 out. He's gone. He's yeah. Well, that that could be a computer thing, you know. Maybe he was using it from a phone that where the battery went, you know, because it says on in his own bio he uses FaceTime, so he's an Apple guy, you know. Skype is a is a Windows thing. Yeah, I you know I so. I can give him the benefit of the doubt, I guess. You know, we are live yeah. after all. So. Yeah, I mean, we we didn't do anything to offend him, you no, know. I don't think so. I mean, you know, even bringing up uh, the possibility of a Ted Cruz porn movie didn't offend the guy, so I don't see why. <laughs> yeah, talk, talking about synchronicity would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's that, but it also allows us, you know, time to reflect on on a lot of things that the guy said, you know. Yeah. And and it would have been nice uh, to hear more, but he just suddenly left. So <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure he would have loved to have yeah. offered us more up, you know. So I don't I don't I don't think there's any kind of malicious reason for for losing him. And it is don't forget in the Mercury retrograde. Even though I hate saying that, you know me, I got that that thing about Mercury retrograde. Computers break down all the time. Communications break down all the time. It doesn't have to be because it looks like Mercury is traveling reverse around the sun. You know, come on now. <laughs> but yeah. but on a better note, uh, we got Travis Short for the first hour next Tuesday and uh, Brian Seach, we're going to talk about cryptos, cryptids. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. And Boy, there's a... There's a power pack night for us. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the Butler Paranormal Conference, which is coming up here uh, April 6th. We're going to talk about that as well with Brian. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, and we we really haven't had that many crypto guys on here. No. If any. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so it'll be, uh, it'll be We have talked about the dog men, though. You yeah. Know? Yeah, Brian has just... some insight on that, too. So. Really? It'll oh. be interesting. Guess yeah, we'll have to. Geez, I'll have to tune in Tuesday from seven to nine to check that. <laughs> and then on Thursday we have Dr. Heather Lynn on. The oh. 28th, so. Yeah. Wow. We have a pretty good lineup here next couple of weeks. You, you know, you've always got a good lineup. 
dude. And, you know, and I always say it out loud. I'm not jealous, you know, that you're finding these great guys. Look, I'm proud of the guests that I'm bringing to, to my show, too. Oh, shameless self-promotion here since we got a little time to fill in. Uh, yes, Chip Reichenthal has this wonderful show Monday nights right here on WCET.FM. Uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, also Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, called Kindness Beyond the Veil, where we do take a look at, and forgive me, Dr. Mel, paranormal, (laughs) (laughs) supernatural, psychic, extraterrestrial uh, realms, but we look at at the kinder side of these things, because, yeah, uh, they're there. Oh, and, and it's, uh, as long as we're shamelessly self-promoting, uh, this coming Monday, I've got my good friend, first guest we ever had. He was the first three-timer for Kindness Beyond the Veil. Uh, Mark Kies cool. is going to be our special guest uh, this coming Monday. Now, he's a part of two TV shows, both on the Travel Channel now, and, and both are good, you know. There's a lot of shows and uh, that I won't mention by name, and there's a lot of newer shows that I don't mention by name because I don't like the dog shows. But it just seems there's always something demonic or evil or nasty or negative, and they seem to ramp it up over and over. But it's these shows aren't like that. They're yeah. they're actually very interesting. One's called Haunted Hospitals, and it talks about. I did. See uh, that. Okay, That's yeah, a good show. Very good. People, show. yeah, actually have. Uh, you know, some 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 uh, very vivid experiences in hospitals. You know, I've had some of those myself. You know, and geez, when I was a medium, you know, and I'd go visit like a sick relative in the hospital, I'd see all sorts of people on there. Yeah, I mean, you know, in my mind's eye, anyway. Our friend Brian Kano was in that show as well. Yeah. Um, no, Brian Cano I saw last night on, uh, oh, jeez, now i got to think of the name of it. Paranormal uh, Stories or something like that? Yeah, Paranormal Caught on Camera, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I love Brian Cano, but yeah, Brian I've known for a, a long time. And he's, you know, he's back in. He's coming really back in the industry. He kind of stepped away for a little while, but he's back, you know. And, uh, boy, he's a beautiful guy. Yeah, I think it was Paranormal Caught on Camera, That's I think. It, yeah, it might have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, I uh, yeah, uh, but Haunted Hospital, yeah, I don't think he's in that. But uh, Mark Heise makes appearances in that. But there's the other show, which is actually my new favorite show on Paranormal TV. Paranormal 911. Paranormal 911, yeah. And it helps that, you know, Wifey and I are on this investigation discovery kick, you know. Uh, it's ironic. I mean, Mark Kies was a, a criminal investigator for the Pennsylvania State Police for years, you know, basically the equivalent of a homicide detective, if you will, you know, or covered some very, very special cases for the the state of Pennsylvania, you know, and they are talking about experiences that uh, police officers or EMTs or firefighters, any first responders have had, you know. And then they'll have a, um, a, uh, an expert, if you will. They have three segments each uh, throughout this hour on Paranormal 911. They'll have three different uh, tales, which they do, you know, they, they do do the dramatizations of these things. And, of course, they do, you know, hike that up a notch, which is perfectly fine. <laughs> 
But they also have these uh, experts, if you will, expert voices commenting on what could have happened or why it could have happened. But they're doing it in a balanced perspective. You know, they're not going for the jugular. They're not going for it's automatically gnashing out to get you. You know, they're 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 not pushing a fear mongering type of thing. They're simply explaining you know, why these things may have happened, how they may have happened, but in a balanced way. And it's ab- absolutely fascinating. It's a paranormal 911. And, you know, I'd like to say it, it, it plays every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so we encourage you to DVR that because uh, 9 p.m. Eastern on a Monday, the great Michael Vera is here on this network with Late Night in the Midlands. So we want you to listen to Michael's show. And then at midnight, when Michael's done, you then you can see, you know, the, the, the replay <laughs> of Paranormal 911. Or you can DVR it mm-hmm. and just, you know, just stay tuned to WCET.FM at all times. You know. Yeah, this show replays on Fridays from 5, 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. And on Monday mornings... Uh, 3 to 5 p.m. or 3 to 5 a.m. Eastern. So wow. Those two days that this show, our show replays. So. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, mine, uh, my Kindness Beyond the Veil uh, runs live uh, Mondays, rebroadcasts uh, Wednesdays, both from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. So there's really five days a week where mm-hmm. there's one or both of us on, on this network right around the same period of time. And I mean, how how... How phenomenal is that? How awesome is that, right? Right. You can even use a Mel Schwartz kind of word like synchronicity. You know, (laughs) (laughs) There's always some new and awesome truths to be found here on WCET.FM between, yeah, Supernatural Realm with the great Tim Roxbury, your kindness beyond the veil. Yeah. By the way, go ahead. ahead. And if you're listening in uh, Columbia, Columbia, South Carolina, you could listen to us via 101.7 FM on the Dow. Awesome. See, I, I live like eight states away from South Carolina, and but I still have 101.7 on my automatic dial in the car. You know? <laughs> Just in case, huh? Just in case. Well, I can you know, Just drive, in case you get drive a around trip. two yeah. in the morning, yeah, and hear some fascinating stuff. That's it. You know? Yeah. And God, God bless our... Our friends in South Carolina, you know. Oh, I, I forgot to mention, yeah. So Mark Kyes on Kindness Beyond the Veil this coming Monday. And a week from this coming Monday, Dr. Claude Swanson, brother. Cool. Yeah. And he's got he he's got his his new book out, you know, which basically really carries on uh, with new research. From from uh, the last two books of his, which is all about really the science of the afterlife. I mean, he points out, you know, uh, all this different medical, scientific, and physical evidence of how the soul uh, continues on once our we have shuffled off our mor- mortal coil, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So even after death, there is evidence of the the soul's existence. But he's got all sorts of uh, newer evidence, new all these new different avenues that he's presenting in his latest work. And he's also working, by the way, with the Dr. Edgar Mitchell 
foundation for research into extraterrestrial and extraordinary experiences himself. And he had uh, some things about orbs, which was very cool, you know, you know. I don't know about you, Timmy, and we may have talked about this, mm-hmm. but orbs and and investigating in graveyards always seem to be kind of snickered at yeah. in in, the, in this field, you know. Oh, what the hell do you want to investigate a graveyard for? Because that's where the dead are, duh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's almost like cheating. Why do you want to go to a place like that? It's too easy. Wait, because we want to learn proper method. That's how. That's why. You know, you'd be amazed at what you can find there or or working on orbs. People always say, ah, what's a orbs? That's ridiculous. It's dust. It's these little flickers of dust. And you don't even know they're there until, you know, once you've taken a picture and left the scene and developed your film, well, at least old school wise, yeah. you know, and, you know, if, if, if an orb was worth anything, you would see it up close. Yeah, I've, I disagree with that theory that, that they're just dust because I've gotten. Uh, full body apparitions at, at at the same time an orb shows up. So, yeah, yeah I kind of disagree with that little theory of dust. I disagree with it too. And my wife will tell me I have had full body apparitions that appear uh, behind me, but it's my dust. You know, it's like picture pig pen from the Charlie Brown comics. You know? <laughs> so not always the cleanest guy. You know? So I leave a trail of dust behind. And I'm kidding on that. But actually, I was talking to a listener of this network, by the way. Yeah, we got two minutes. Uh, uh, Go ahead. Okay. A, a very magical young lady who mentioned that she had actually seen two orbs recently. One was white and one was blue. And she wanted my take on that. So I offered my take on that. And if people are interested in that, they'll just have to tune in next time around. Because like you said, yeah, we're running we're running low on time here. I did a trip but, out in Colorado because my brother and his family lived out there. And we went to the Garden of the Gods and... It was bright, sunny day, you know, and mm-hmm. I was, we were making our way through, you know, through the Garden of the Gods and down the hill and around the bends and all this. And in our travels, we stopped at this one one spot where we could pull off and take take it all in. Well, anyways, I snapped a picture, and I didn't know it until I got home, but there's a big, giant blue orb showed up right, mm-hmm. in, my, right in my picture. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. You know, my wife and I are starting to see orbs here, but we think that they are not spirit in nature, more closer to perhaps something extraterrestrial, like the light beings, if you will. Right. But even with that said, in the paranormal, you know, we had uh, re- a couple of really good friends that were orb people specifically. Mm-hmm. They had this; they would have this church that would allow them to to uh, do their work there they had a big graveyard in the back and they would get all sorts of orb photographs and a lot of times you'd see the manifest you know before you took a picture and all different colors you know yellow red blue white all different sizes you know and you'd know that he had developed this relationship with them because it was almost like family coming to visit to say hi Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing yeah, so I don't think of orbs as a cheap thing at all, yeah. or uh, or doing investigations in graveyards. Yeah, you know, well, and it's that's time how for you us learn. to go, buddy. It is, man. It is time. Well, this has been an, uh, another phenomenal show, another phenomenal guest for as long as we had him. You know, three quarters of the show—that's good. So uh, our thanks to Mel Schwartz, uh, MelSchwartz.com for him. 
or Amazon.com for his latest work, The Possibility Principle. It's got a longer title than that, but that's all you really need to know in order to find it because we're almost out of time. We love you all. We thank you for listening here in the Supernatural Realm. Tim. Good night, everybody. God bless. And I hope everybody tunes in next week when we have uh, Travis Short and uh, Brian Seach with us for two hours. Awesome. Good times. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Stay tuned. Late Night in the Midlands next with the great Michael Vera right here, WCET.FM. Don't touch that dial. Good night, everybody. We love you. Listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other.